the scriptures today come, comes from uh, Habakkuk um, chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, and chapter 3, verse 2. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time make them known, in wrath remember mercy. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, so today, for the first time, uh, Matthew and I are tag-teaming. Uh, we, we thought about having a little graphic on the, on the screen when we, when we touch out, um, but that didn't get done in time, so sorry about that. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking and praying about what to say today, about what God would have me say. On this first official Sunday of our life as Christ City Church, should I speak words of inspiration and celebration, words that cast a grand vision and stir excitement in our souls, words that open all of our eyes to the possibilities of God that lay before us? Or should I be more circumspect, more grounded, more down-to-earth, tracing the paths we have trod to get here, marking out the unexpected twists and turns that have led us to this moment, encouraging a long obedience in the same direction. Both are needed for any journey, the looking forward and the looking back, the motivation to keep moving and the contemplation to know how far we've come and where we've come from. The word that has kept coming back to me is resurrection. Resurrection, that's what God's been teaching me about and impressing and showing me, uh, especially recently. We are a resurrection people. A resurrection is obviously not a, a new or original concept in church settings. After all, we follow a man named Jesus whose life, death, and resurrection changed everything. But here's what God has been impressing on me for us. As we begin this journey with a new name, we remain a resurrection people. We remain a resurrection people. That isn't changing. Our calling as a resurrection people isn't changing. And that calling is, as Wendell Berry would say, to practice resurrection. To practice resurrection. And let me suggest that that means pointing to the resurrection of Jesus and pointing out the resurrection all around us. Pointing to the resurrection of Jesus and pointing out the resurrection all around us. And I'll explain that in a moment, but let me begin by restating what may be obvious. Resurrection involves both life and death. Resurrection involves both life and death. Now, resurrection may not seem like a natural takeaway from the passages we read from Habakkuk, words that speak of God's awe-inspiring activity, God's mighty deeds, and God's certain revelation. Surely, you might be thinking, all of that errs more on the life side of things. And that's what we'd love to see more of, isn't it? 
the glory, the divine action, the undoubtable work of God that leaves you breathless. We long to be successful. Jobs, promotions, raises, degrees, homes, uh, or on the church front, the traditional measures of success have been the three B's, butts in seats, a big budget, and a building. <laughs> we want to be lauded. We want to be praised. We want to be the center of attention. We long for smooth sailing and comfortable climbs. Those to us are often signs of life, signs of God's blessing, signs of the Holy Spirit at work. And don't get me wrong, they can be. But what God has been reminding me is that God works as much through the hard times as the easy ones, as much through the challenges as the comfort, and as much through death as through life. See, the context for the book of Habakkuk is a bleak one, actually. Israel is rampant with social injustice, which seems like death, which causes the prophet to cry out to God for life, to which God responds that he's going to do something that will amaze people, which seems like life. But then he goes on. He says he's going to mobilize the heathen Babylonians to invade the promised land and teach the people of God a lesson, which seems like death. And yet God is at work through it all. God is present through it all. Maybe you've heard the words of God through the prophet Isaiah. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. What a message of hope, of light, of life. But that message was delivered to a people in exile to a disappointed people, a people whose expectations and dreams had been shattered, a people who were dwelling in the land of death. And that message, again, was a reminder that God is at work through it all. God is present through it all. See, not only does God shine light into darkness, God can and does work in and through darkness to bring light. Inexplicably, Mysteriously and sometimes frustratingly, God can and does work through death to bring life. In John 12, 24, Jesus said, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In one sense, he was talking about himself, about, about his own death, about how he had to die and leave so that the Holy Spirit could come and multiply God's work on earth through us. This is the resurrection we point to. The resurrection of Jesus, Easter, the weekend that changed the world. We celebrate Easter Sunday. We celebrate the life of Jesus. We celebrate the victory of life over death. But without the death of Jesus, as undeserved and awful and grievous as it was, there would have been no resurrection. Not for him, and not for us. So we are a resurrection people who point to the resurrection, the life and death and life of Jesus. But in another sense, Jesus in John 12 is talking about the cosmic reality of resurrection. And this is what we as resurrection people point out. It is a fact of life, not just in Jesus' life, but in our lives too, that resurrection can't happen unless something dies first. 
Resurrection can't happen unless something dies first. Let me give you an example. Before we started this parish four years ago, I was living up in Columbia Heights, a part of town I had lived in for three years. I was serving at the church in a role I loved and felt very comfortable in, and I really wasn't looking for anything to change. In fact, I was really looking for nothing to change. After all, as I've shared here before, change equals loss equals grief, even if it's good change. Even if it's changed for the better, something is being lost. Something is dying. It may be a dream, an expectation, a hope, a vision for how you thought things were going to be. It may be your ego that's dying. It may be your desires for comfort. It may be your dream job. It may be a treasured relationship. It may be your need for approval or for control over something or someone. My plans for comfort and familiarity had to die in order for me to get to, be, get to have the privilege of participating in this community. For me to have the joy of building deep friendships here with many of you. For me to have the honor of walking with you all these last few years. Over and over, the pattern of resurrection has been on display in my life. A sign of God at work. After I moved to D.C., my political ambitions had to die in order for me to find new life in a pastoral calling. As a 20-something, my dreams of getting married young had to die in order for me to find fulfillment in singleness. As in my 30s, my desires to keep all my options open had to die in order for me to experience joy in relationship without wondering what if at every turn. In my marriage, my version of Carolyn, who always agrees with me and who can read my mind, has had to die. <laughs> Let me finish my sentence. <laughs> so that the real Carolyn can flourish so that our marriage can flourish, so that I can learn to love not some idealized reflection of myself, but another human being, flawed and fearfully and wonderfully made. Some of those deaths, some of those endings, I got to choose. Others were chosen for me. And they all hurt, even the ones where it was right and good for them to end. They all caused grief of some kind. They all required me to work through some things. And that's true when it comes to faith as well. It's true when it comes to church communities. It was true for us when we started the district church seven years ago. It was true for us when we started the Eastside Parish four years ago. And it will be true for us as Christ City Church. Some preconceived notions, some expectations, even some dreams for the ideal community will have to die in order for us to fully live into who God has called us to be. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Only that fellowship which faces disillusionment, with all its unhappy and ugly aspects, begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both.
He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Now that's not to say we shouldn't have hopes and dreams for what God's kingdom looks like. Indeed, uh, the vision of Christ City Church is to see the kingdom of God on display in D.C. in every life and in every sphere of life. And so I'm not saying that we shouldn't hold before us the example of Jesus or that we shouldn't seek to grow in maturity and love being transformed evermore in the likeness of Christ or that we shouldn't offer up bold prayers for ourselves and our church, for our neighbors and our neighborhood and our city. We should do all of those things. But we should also be ready, if we want to see the life of Christ, if we want to experience the resurrection power of God, we should also be ready to go through the valley of the shadow of death, to give up some things that we've held on, maybe for a long time, Maybe that's what Jesus was alluding to when he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Resurrection didn't just happen 2,000 years ago. Resurrection won't just happen when Christ comes again. It happens every day in your life and in mine and in our life together. Here in D.C., in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your relationships and in your spiritual journey, Daily living, daily dying, daily resurrection. That's what resurrection people do. We point out the resurrection that's all around us. The Spirit of God at work through life and death. Four years ago, before we officially launched the Eastside Parish, what is today becoming Christ City Church, we were, as we are today, a motley collection of folks. Some brand new to D.C., Others, locals, longtime residents. This picture uh, is one of my favorites. It was from one of our early prayer gatherings in 2013. Many of the faces uh, in, in that room have moved on to different pastures, but by the grace of God, many are still here today. In those early days, we wrote down some of the prayers we were praying for these neighborhoods and for our new church community. We made plain the revelation, as Habakkuk might say. I'd like to read you a few of them so we can look back at some of the ways God showed up. We prayed that we would have a location by Easter. That was March 31st, 2013. On March 8th, we met with the principal of Minor Elementary School, and we've been here ever since, cultivating not only a relationship with the school administration, but also with the parents of the students here and the Rosedale neighborhood around us. We prayed for the development of a music team. In our early days, we had to have worship leaders and musicians come over from the other parish up in Columbia Heights to shore up and sometimes to be our band. Today, we have several volunteer worship leaders and dozens of folks who lend their musical gifts on Sundays. We prayed for the building of a children's program. And here, let me just give a big shout out to Ashley Barefoot, who oversaw the Kid City for the first couple of years, and then Nikki Wiggins, who's led it for the last couple of years. And I just want to recognize them. <laughs> just a few weeks ago, we held our second annual Kids City Camp, where we taught and entertained and bonded with over 30 kids from our community and our neighborhood. 
And we prayed, I don't know who wrote this, but we prayed for a close-knit community that breaks bread together, celebrates together, grieves together, and shares resources to meet needs. This is us. This is you. In your friendships, in your relationships, in your small groups, in your serving and in your generosity of time, energy, and money, you are an answer to the prayers that several dozen folks were praying four years ago. I'd also like to share something I wrote on September 20th, 2010, the day after we launched the district church. In his sermon, A Tough Mind and a Tender Heart, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote about the person who has firmness of purpose and solidness of commitment. Firmness of purpose and solidness of commitment. And this is what I wrote in my journal. It was that last phrase, firmness of purpose and solidness of commitment, that stirred me. See, my approach has always involved more bet hedging and playing it safe, waiting until the dust has settled before striking out, holding out until I know things will work out. And I think God wants more than that. I think God wants more than playing it safe. Being responsible doesn't equate with playing it safe. Making wise decisions doesn't always mean going where things are guaranteed. Following God doesn't always entail knowing how I'll be taken care of. Only that I'll be taken care of. And so what does firmness of purpose and solidness of commitment look like for you in this season? What does being a resurrection people look like for you in this season? Pointing to the resurrection of Jesus and pointing out the resurrection all around us. Brothers and sisters, as we begin this journey as Christ City Church, may we commit and recommit our lives to the Lord of the resurrection. And may we pull more tightly around us the mantle we have been given. We are a resurrection people. We are God's resurrection people, tasked with pointing to the resurrection of Jesus, pointing out the resurrection all around us. And so may we continue walking together in the love of God the Father, in the footsteps of Jesus the Son, and in the life-giving grace of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You guys get uh, dueling preachers today, man. This is, this is what happens when you launch a new season. Um, I'm delighted to be here with you guys this morning. I'm delighted to be among you. I'm delighted to be a part of your family and to celebrate the ways that God has been at work in us for these last several years and to dream together about the ways that he's going to be at work in us moving forward. It was a, a Thursday night. It was May 18th, actually. It was three days before I was going to announce uh, to the entire church that a new season for us as a church was approaching. And that Thursday night, ahead of Sunday's announcement, I met with the prayer team uh, to share with them uh, the news because I wanted them to begin praying ahead of Sunday. I had the sense that God wanted the prayer team especially to be the ones that led our church into this new season that we're upon. And part of the reason that I had that sense is because in the days leading up to that night, I had been sharing uh, with small group leaders in our church uh, and sharing the news with them that a new season was coming, that a new season was coming, and just preparing our church for this. And uh, on more than one occasion, um, small group leaders, that they would tell me, they'd say, we've sensed it. 
We, we've uh, sensed God's work in our church. It's been building. He's in our midst. We've sensed it. One evening, a couple of uh, leaders and I were having dinner at Busboys and Poets. And following the dinner, the leaders and I are standing outside, and they say to me, let's pray, and let's call upon God to move in our midst and to do a new work, and to stir in us a revival of his work in our church and in our city. And so there, right in front of us, boys and poets, they just laid hands, and they ju- we just prayed. We had church right there, bus boys. And we prayed out loud and we called out to the maker and sustainer of the universe. And we said, holy God, do a work in us and use us to do a mighty work in our city. Use us to draw others to yourself. Use us to display the redemptive purposes of our Lord. That's what we prayed right there in front of the restaurant. I would get emails from other small group leaders wherein they would sense the Holy Spirit speaking to them giving them visions and dreams and passages of Scripture, words and images that they believed were the Spirit's gentle way of readying them for the amazing season that was ahead for us as a church. And so that Thursday night, meeting with the prayer team, after I shared uh, the news with them and answered some logistical questions, the team began praying, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we cried out to God to lead us by His Holy Spirit. We prayed for protection through the transition. We prayed for revival in our midst. We prayed for a move of the Spirit in us. We prayed that we would step forward in the footsteps that God was ordering for us. And we prayed for sensitivity towards one another and towards the Lord. We prayed prayers of celebration for all that God had done in our past as the Eastside Parish. And we prayed prayers of thanksgiving for the district church and prayers of thanksgiving and anticipation for what was ahead. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed that night and we didn't know what the name was going to be when we prayed that night. We weren't even sure what to call it. We didn't have a name to call the thing that we were aching for. And at some point in our prayer meeting, uh, one of the prayer team members, it was Marissa, she began praying and she said, Lord, give us a name. Lord, we want you to name us for when you give names, you give meaning and purpose. So Lord, give us a name. Lord, give us a name. When I left that meeting, uh, that prayer tenaciously shook in my soul, and I couldn't stop praying it. Lord, give us a name. Give us a name. Lord, would you name us? Would you give us the vision? Would you give us the future that you have intended for us? Would uh, you uh, build on who you've made us? Would you take the beautiful and raw materials that has been the Eastside Parish of the District Church and fashion us carefully into the season that's ahead for us? Give us a name, Lord. You've given us a past, now give us a future. We with Habakkuk, we stand in amazement at what you've done. We with Habakkuk, we acknowledge that you're doing something new. Lord, give us a name. There's a rich and biblical history of God changing the names of his children. For the Lord, uh, names communicate a purpose and a story and a mission. In the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, we see God giving new names. In Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram and his wife, Sarai. He calls them to trust him with their future, with their comfort, with their hopes, and with their dreams. He calls them to trust him and his ways. He tells them to leave where they have lived for their entire lives and to set out for a new land. He doesn't even tell them where to go or where the land is. He says in Genesis 12, 1, he just says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. He didn't even tell them where it is. He says, I'll tell you. Just go. I'll tell you later. At some point in the future. Just 
Move along. And the reason for this calling was that God was going to use Abram to be the first founder of the people that would later come to be called the people of Israel. God was using this single couple to form a people that would be the foundation from which God would work his entire redemptive story, a story that would eventually come to include you and me. And after God calls Abram and Sarai and clues them into his mission for their lives, he gives them a new name. Abram, which means exalted father or high father, as in a family or a clan, was changed to Abraham, which means father of many nations. Sarai, which just has the tender name of my princess, was changed to Sarah, which means the mother of many nations. God changed their names to reflect his mission and his vision for them. God would change Abraham's uh, grandson's name too. Jacob was the second born grandson of Abraham to Abraham's son Isaac. Jacob is a shifty character in the Old Testament, ruthless and conniving at times. And in the ancient world, the firstborn sons were the favored ones. But Jacob had an older twin, Esau, who was to be the heir apparent to Isaac. Yet in a turn of trickery, Jacob suckers his uh, brother out of his inheritance, a a move that would drive a wedge between Jacob and his brother for years. Later in life, Jacob would go on to meet his brother Esau, and on the eve of their meeting, in the hours ahead of their reconciliation, God would come to Jacob in the form of an angel. And in that meeting is a fascinating and and a bit cryptic story, but what is described as a wrestling match between Jacob and the Lord. I suspect some of us have wrestled with the Lord. We've been in seasons that feel like a night of wrestling similar to Jacob's where we grapple with, with the God that we love, the God who loves us, and there's yet still a wrestling. The story in Genesis 32 tells us that just before dawn, just before the Lord departs, just before Jacob goes to meet his estranged brother, uh, it's, um, which is its own story of amazing redemption and reconciliation and love, just before all of that, God gives Jacob a new name. Jacob's name meant trickster and supplanter, which is a terrible name, in my opinion. Sorry if your name is Jacob. (laughs) Jacob changes his name to Israel, which means the one who strives with God, the one who wrestles with God. It also can mean the Lord fights for you. Jesus gets in on the name-changing action in the New Testament, As well, as Jesus begins calling different men to be his disciples, he calls one man, Andrew, who was Simon's brother. Andrew begins following Jesus, and then he runs home, and he meets his brother. He says, Simon, we have actually found the Messiah. And then Simon uh, runs to find Jesus as well. And when he meets him in John 1, verse 42, Jesus says, You are Simon, son of John. You'll From now on, you'll be called Cephas, which in translated means Peter. Jesus changes his name from Simon to Peter. Later in their journeys together, Jesus and Peter are in a conversation about the various assertions that people are making about Jesus and who he is, especially in light of Jesus' growing popularity in the wake of his teachings and his miracles. Jesus looks at Peter and he asks him, Peter, who do you say I am? Peter replies, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. 
And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus changes his name from Simon, which means God has heard, to Peter, which means the rock. With all due respect to Dwayne Johnson. He's called the rock. He's a wrestler. (laughs) Sorry. Just stick to your notes, Watson. The one who would deny Jesus. The one who was double-minded and fickle. The one, that's the one that Jesus renames the rock. That which is steady and steadfast. When Peter says to Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the one upon whom our salvation rests, then Jesus says, that's right, Simon. I've heard your call for help. Your call for healing and for salvation. And because you have placed your faith in me, you have believed this gospel. That's the thing upon which I will build my church. A few things, though, about name changes. And not just in these, uh, but in other places. The first thing is that people don't stop being who they have been when their name is changed. They didn't lose their past. Their past was used, it was redeemed and stewarded for the future that God was pointing them towards. When Abraham was Abram, he was an old man. And when he became Abraham, guess what? He was still an old man. God used his age and his season of life. He redeemed it for his purposes. He didn't throw out the years or reverse them. He saw them as right and good and profitable for the new season and the new calling that he had in mind for Abraham. When Simon became Peter, he didn't stop being a fisherman. He just became a different kind of fisherman. He didn't stop being a zealot. He just became a different kind of zealot. God took who Simon had been and seized it for his purposes and said, You, Peter, are the rock. The second thing about when names are changed is that these folks, they weren't sinless saints when God gave them a new name. God didn't wait until they got their act together before he changed their name. God acted. God did it. God named, not because of the person's merit or their hard work or special power or moral uprightness. In each case and in all cases, it is God in his mercy and grace and goodness that changes the names and bestows a mission. That is a consistent act of God's grace. He gives generously, and he doesn't wait until we put ourselves together under our own power because we can't. He acts first, and he acts out of love. The third thing about name changes is that it points to God and God's work, not simply to the person or the person's work in the world. Abraham's fathering of many nations wasn't going to be because of Abraham's effort, but because of God's loving work. Sarah's mothering of many nations wasn't going to be because of Sarah's efforts, but because of God's loving work. Jacob wasn't going to fight on God's behalf, thereby earning security or salvation. Rather, God was going to fight on Jacob's behalf, not physical enemies, but spiritual ones. Peter wasn't going to establish the church. Neither the gospel nor the church was going to rise or fall on Peter's righteousness, but on the finished work of Jesus. The name changes always point to the work that God was doing in their midst, moving history to the point of salvation and redemption and the renewal of all things through the power and work ultimately of Christ Jesus. The names pointed to God himself, not to the one being renamed. 
the prayers that were prayed on May 18th, and the prayers that we've prayed since then, the Lord has heard them and he's answered them, and God has given us, dear church, a new name. Today we celebrate a new name and a new season that's beginning for us as Christ City Church of Washington, D.C. And while there aren't any midnight wrestling matches or dramatic stories involving angels that I'm aware of, <laughs> um, God has nevertheless named us, and he's given us a mission. So in keeping with the spirit of Abraham, Sarah, Peter, and others, our purpose is bound up in our name. In response to the grace of God, Christ City Church is joining Christ in the work of redemption in Washington, D.C. in the world. Our vision is to see the kingdom of God on display in D.C. in every life and in every sphere of life. Our new name reminds us that we are called to Christ, the one on whom our salvation hangs. Christ is the object of our faith. We say with Peter, Jesus is the Savior. He is the one with whom we are captivated. He is the one to whom we look. He is the one to whom we follow. And he is the one that we invite others to follow as well. Where we see joy and beauty in the world, we acknowledge that as the handiwork of Christ, the creator, the sustainer, the liberator of the world. Where we see brokenness, Jesus is the one to whom we call upon, knowing that he is the one who is working to renew all things, heal all things, and to restore all things. Our new name reminds us that we're called to this city. Because Jesus took on flesh and blood. Because he lived in a neighborhood and identified with the people. We also root ourselves in neighborhoods and identify with people. Our place is Washington, D.C. And while many come to this city to consume it and to use it, we want to be among those who love it. We aim to be a people that learn what it means to follow Jesus in a locale, to be good neighbors, to be storytellers of God's good news, and to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God in D.C. Our new name reminds us that we're called to be the church, a kingdom community and a kingdom signpost of Christ's inbreaking work of healing and right-setting all that is broken. Church where there is bondage, we will display freedom. Where there is lacking, we will display enough. Where there is sin, we will display salvation. Where there is death, we will display life. Where there is isolation, we'll display welcome. Where there is injustice, we will display justice. Where there is hurt, we'll display healing. Where there is idolatries of the world of power and lust and violence and oppression, we are to display Christ crucified, dead, buried, and on the third day resurrected to new life. That's what we're going to be as a church. This is our call, and this is our new name, and this is our mission. The thing about names, though, is that sometimes you've got to grow into them. This is a name that we have. It's a good name. This is the vision we have. It's a good, God-honoring mission. We ain't there yet. We still got some growing to do, church. Some of you know that when Lisa and I named our children, we named them with a purpose in mind. Our oldest was named after the prophet Nathan, the one who spoke truth to power. We pray that he grows to become a man that speaks truthfully and gracefully and faithfully to those that are in power. Uh, he's not there yet, but he practices on me. 
<laughs> Our middle child was named after the prophet Elijah, the one who wept with those who mourned. We've been praying that he grows to become a man who carries in his soul the care and compassion that comes from God. Those of you that know him know that he is easily our most tender. Our youngest child was named after the prophetesses of the Old Testament who continually called the people of God to live into the justice-seeking faith God had in mind for them, a faith that would display to the world that God is mighty to serve. And even at five, she's able to articulate the rightness and wrongness of things in the world in a way that stirs the hearts of her parents towards God. Uh, for those of you that are expectant parents, I would just caution you about naming your children after prophets. <laughs> it can be a challenge for all of you. Christ City Church, each time we say the name of our church, we are articulating a reminder and a prayer. Reminder that we're called to be a people shaped and formed and conformed into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. A reminder that we are to love this amazing and beautiful place that we call home. A place lusted after by some and despised by others, but loved by God. Washington, D.C. Reminder that we're to be a church in the best and beautiful intentions of the word, a family of God displaying to one another and to the world a love that crosses boundaries of blood and nationality, statehood and tribe, a community of commitment because God in his overflowing mercy formed a commitment with us by grace through faith in Jesus. When we say Christ City Church, we are reminding ourselves and one another of our name and our calling. And there's a prayer embedded in it, a prayer that by God's grace, we would be a people that live into that name, that we're gracious with, oursel that we are gracious with ourselves when we fail to live into our name. And we're passionate to see the power of God alive in us so that as we do live into it, we point not to ourselves, but to Christ, the truest of names, the name that is above every name, and the name that saves and that matters most. That's our vision, and that's what's up ahead for us, by God's grace. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I pray that you're pleased. God, I pray that as we Give thought and consideration to the ways that you have been at work in our past, the ways that you have been stirring us here in recent days, God, and as we look forward to how you will continue to work in our midst, God. I pray that our attention and our gaze is ever and always on you. That the things to which we set our hands to, the ways that we join you in your work of reconciliation and redemption in the world, God, that it would point to you, not to us that you would be the one celebrated, that we would, in our living and moving and working and serving, that we would stir curiosity, not about us, but about the one to whom we serve. God, you're at work. Deepen in us our call and our walk towards you. I pray that we would lift you up and see your kingdom come in this city as it is in heaven. In Christ's name, amen.
before Matthew um, transitions us uh, to take communion together as, as a church, uh, I wanted to read this. It's a blessing for a new beginning. And so if you're in a posture where you would like to receive, you can put your hands out as a prayer and receive this Christ City Church. In out-of-the-way places of the heart, where your thoughts never think to wander, this beginning has been quietly forming, waiting until you were ready to emerge. For a long time, it has watched your desire, feeling the emptiness grow inside you, noticing how you willed yourself on, still unable to leave what you had outgrown. It watched you play with the seduction of safety and the gray promises that sameness whispered. Heard the waves of turmoil rise and relent, wondered, would you always live like this? And then the delight, when your courage kindled and out you stepped onto new ground, your eyes young again with energy and dream, a path of plenitude opening before you. And though your destination is not clear, you can trust the promise of this opening. Unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning that is one with your life's desire. Awaken your spirit to adventure. Hold nothing back. Learn to find ease in risk. Soon you will be home in a new rhythm, for your soul senses the world that awaits you.